0: From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. We are hearing from Denver's next mayor this week. We just don't know who that is yet. Yesterday, Kelly Bruff. today, an in-depth interview with her
1: opponent in the runoff, Mike Johnston, on homelessness and housing. 80% of the teachers, nurses, firefighters, public servants, servers in this city can't afford to live in this city tonight.
0: His solutions for renters and hopeful
1: homebuyers. Plus, Johnston wants to hire a different kind of police officer. If that's the different kind of job someone's being called to do, you can recruit a different kind of person to take that job. You can train them in different ways so their skills are actually in de-escalation, not in escalation, and finding a situation that's heated and finding a way to make it calm. I think we can deliver a very different kind of relationship between city and police. And he takes us to a spot in the city he'd like to reshape.
0: I'm Joanne Woolley, Director of Legacy Giving. A future gift to Colorado Public Radio through your will or estate is a meaningful way to recognize and sustain an organization that enriches your life and your community. If leaving a gift to CPR is already in your future plans, please let us know. As a fellow Legacy Circle member, it would be my privilege to thank you and hear your story.
2: Learn more at cpr.mylegacygift.org.
0: This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. And our first guest rolled up on a scooter. Hi, Mike. How are you? I'm okay. How are you? Good, thank you. Mike is Mike Johnston, one of the two candidates in the runoff for Denver mayor. And as I did yesterday with his opponent, Kelly Bruff, I asked Johnston to pick
1: a spot in the city he'd like to reshape. Where have you met us? Uh, We are right here at the corner of Broadway and Stout in downtown Denver, and excited to walk you through a couple of blocks of places I think we can transform in the city.
0: Johnston is a former state senator. He was a teacher and principal, advised the Obama administration on education, led a community foundation. He hoped to be governor and a U.S. senator, but lost those campaigns. So if he wins the mayor's race, What transformation does he envision in this neighborhood, roughly between downtown and Rhino, known as Arapaho Square?
1: So I think one of the things you'll see here is when we look at the current issues we face with homelessness, uh, part of the challenge is that almost all of the services for folks who are homeless are all concentrated in the same three or four blocks of downtown Denver. And so when you go down Champa, or down Stout, or 22nd, or Park Avenue, you'll see heavy concentration of encampments, of folks in and around encampments, and a big part of it is because most of the services that people all access are located in these three or four blocks. And so if you need access to a shelter, if you need access to a hot meal, if you need access to potentially social services support or addiction treatment or even mental health counseling, many of those services are all concentrated in these same three or four blocks. Isn't that a good thing to have one-stop shopping? So we've got the
0: Colorado Coalition for the Homeless here. We've got Urban Peak, which serves youth.
1: The Stout Street Health Center, isn't that a sort of convenience? It's not, because what it does is it concentrates all of the need uh, in those same locations. In the same way that right in the 60s or 70s, we built public housing like the Cabrini Greens in Chicago, and you put all folks that were low income in one neighborhood in one apartment complex. What we've found now is you much more want to integrate those people into broader, more diverse communities where you have people of different socioeconomic backgrounds, different work histories, different peer networks, more interacting in shared spaces. And so one of the ideas behind why we know these micro communities work is you can spread them out around the city. You can have someone living in a micro community that might have 40 or 50 people in it, but you have those services on site. You have the ability to have a mental health counselor, the ability to have addiction treatment, the ability to have long-term workforce training, and those are all on your site. That means not all 1,500 people have to come down to central Denver uh, every day for those resources, and it means you don't get overwhelming concentration of need in certain neighborhoods. You see this neighborhood having much harder time recovering economically or even just in terms of opportunity because there's such dense concentration of need here and in, and instead we can get people both to move their materials and stuff into dignified stable housing like tiny homes but also you can get those services spread out so we have different neighborhoods around the city that can all play a part in carrying that need instead of all of it being born really by one neighborhood. Well now talk to the folks who might live and work in Lodo
0: in Ballpark in Uptown. What might it mean for those who are housed here and whose apartments or condos or workplaces are near these blocks that right now we're looking at you know shopping carts that are filled with people's belongings folks who are sleeping on the street people's suitcases and bags piled up against a building here
1: yeah and this is what we find is for folks that are living in this neighborhood or working in this neighborhood it's much harder for them to be able to enjoy their own quality of life, to be able to return a sense of vitality here. Uh, and we know that means fewer and fewer people are choosing to work here or to live down here. And we also know we can provide really meaningful services for the folks here. We know we can give them a more stable, dignified place to live so they don't have to have someone keeping an eye on their tent every day when they go try to go find a job and their stuff's getting stolen in the middle of the day. You also find it creates a real open air target for the very people that are trying to prey on folks that are trying to get their life back together. This is a great place for dealers to come because they know every day People got to walk right down these streets to get access to services. The same people who are trying to get themselves clean by going to see an addiction support counselor know they got to walk through five or six blocks of dealers who are gonna try to tempt them all the way through that. It actually makes it much harder for people that are trying to get back on their feet to be in the midst of that as well. So I think it's both better for the folks we're trying to serve and better for the neighborhoods that are trying to recover. So you've used the term
0: tiny with tiny homes, micro micro communities. What's all this small
1: talk Mike Johnson? (laughs) I mean, for me, it's about putting things on a human scale. You know, the old school teacher in me says, if you have a class size of 30 or 40 kids, those are even a big class size. Then you can build real relationships. People know each other. You provide services, you know, their individual stories. And when you have those kind of, I'd say human scale communities, it's much easier to be able to build the connections that build the relationships to get people back up on their feet. And it doesn't feel overwhelming in the way right now, Arapaho Square can feel overwhelming because there are, thousands of people, there are hundreds of encampments, there are thousands of loose materials, uh, and there are people with no place to go, and there are residents and neighbors who are really struggling under the weight of that. So are you telling the Colorado Coalition for the Homeless, you're telling Urban Peak, you got to move out of here? No, no, we don't. It's not to say there aren't still great ability to have services in places where they've been built, but it means we can decentralize those services to other places also. So yes, there still might be folks that would come to the downtown headquarters of Urban Peak, but you could also have a bunch of people that would be in their micro community up in northeast Denver where they could have access to someone right on site that they could walk out of their home and sit down at a table and talk to a counselor without having to get on a bus and come across town without having to be within the same four square blocks of all the other thousand folks trying to find services. The other thing you see is as you look at opportunities for growth in a given neighborhood, like there's a big parking lot here, another vacant lot there running along Stout and 22nd. This is owned actually by the federal government. That's a private landowner. These are places where you could do meaningful development. You could do residential. You could do affordable housing. You could do some commercial. Right now, you see they're covered with rocks. They're covered with encampments. No one's moved on being able to do development in this area or bring housing or bring commercial because they're worried that people wouldn't want to come to this neighborhood, and that makes it more challenging place to turn it around. If you both can distribute the services, you also revive a whole section of downtown that could have life. So we're also missing a real opportunity to revive some of these neighborhoods that are buckling under this weight.
0: Let's transition to our studio now and dive deeper into the issues with Denver mayoral candidate Mike Johnston. He came in first in the general election and faces Kelly Bruff in the runoff. Mike, what do you see as the biggest difference between you and Kelly Bruff? Because voters may struggle to differentiate you, both centrist, well-financed, white candidates with a background in government. You're both
1: earning endorsements from people who used to have this job. Uh, yeah, I think there are some real differences. I think for me, one of the keys, maybe three things. One is, you know, I think I have a real big, bold vision for what's possible for the city and the belief that there are some very hard problems we've struggled with that actually are solvable problems. Um, And I think I have a record of taking on incredibly hard problems that people thought were unsolvable and delivering real historic results. You know, that would have included things like passing the DREAM Act for the first time in Colorado for undocumented kids or taking on the NRA on gun safety or getting universal preschool done with a statewide coalition or affordable housing done for the first time in Colorado history with a statewide ballot measure. So I've had a long history of taking on those big progressive issues and delivering real historic results. Then there are some things in which we've been on the other sides. There are key progressive issues I've been pushing on that she was on the other side of. Minimum wage increases that I supported or things like family medical leave that I supported that she opposed or things like greenhouse gas emissions reductions we pushed hard on in the Senate that she also opposed. So there are all really differences there in our record. But I think the last part is also it's not just the big vision and the record of accomplishment. It's who has really detailed plans to know how you're going to accomplish these very complicated problems. I think I've come out with both very clear plans on how we do it, including full budgets for how we would pay for it and where that money comes from. And I think that matters a lot to people.
0: I'll say that Kelly Bruff supports paid family leave. She gave it to her own employees at the chamber, but she has opposed some of the mechanisms by which it has been administered elsewhere. While Denver has over 700,000 people, the metro has more than 3 million. What ought to be the region's top priority?
1: And how would you work with other cities to address that? You know, I think the region's priorities are still the same as Denver's priorities because we all are tied together for sure economically. And for me, that is first and foremost addressing our needs around homelessness. I do think it is housing and affordability. If people can't afford to live and work in the region, they're not going to be able to stay. And I do think it is around public safety. I do think we have still expanding needs around public safety that are true, not just in Denver, but around the region. And what we know is those three things are the drivers of what people either want to live in a city and stay in a city and work in a city or visit a city. And if we get those wrong, they're the things that drive people away. Say they'd rather move their business someplace else or move their family someplace else. And so I think those things that are true for Denver are true for the broader region.
0: Well, why don't we take on public safety and then uh, go to housing? Sure. Do you feel
1: safe in Denver,
0: Mike Johnston?
1: Uh, I do feel safe in Denver in most of all the places that I go and most of the times that I go there. But that's not the experience for a lot of Denverites who will come and tell me stories about times that they don't feel safe. And I talked to someone this morning who had a, a break-in in their backyard last night at 4 o'clock in the morning, and they were terrified about it. I talked to someone who had a shooting through their window in their house in central Denver. And we know there are real concerns and risks. It's, of course, not a, it's not an epidemic. It's not something that we can't stop or get our handle on. But it's not uh, invented. It re- is a very real in- increase in both property crime and violent crime across the city. And people are feeling it, and it's changing the lived experience of the city. Car
0: theft is the most common crime in Denver right now. And these thefts are related to a lot of other types of crime. Say you're elected, someone's car is stolen, Uh, maybe like a friend of mine, they're at a place where there have been carjackings.
1: Why are they better off under your leadership? Uh, well, I have had my car stolen twice, so they will know that they have someone that uh, that has a sympathetic ear because I've have, I have gone through that myself. Uh, I think there are a couple of ways to take this on. One of the things we know is Part of the reasons why we have a shortage of uh, the ability to investigate crimes of all types, including car theft right now, is we don't have enough officers to be able to do those investigations. So a big part of my focus is on restoring about 200 more first responders to the streets of Denver. And I say first responders because you want to have the right person responding to the right incident at the right time. There are a lot of places if you have someone in a mental health crisis, the last person you want to send is an officer. You don't want to send an officer. You want to send a mental health worker like on our star teams or on the co-responder teams. If you have someone who might be in an overdose, you want to send a EMT or a paramedic. But what we have right now is a lot of officers being sent out on those calls and officers who aren't available to be sent out on a call like theft or an assault or a violent crime. And so we do want to restore that capacity. We also need to create some dedicated capacity for things like we do not have an auto theft unit right now in the Denver Police Department. As the city with one of the worst auto theft problems in the country, we don't have a dedicated unit to be able to prevent, investigate, and prosecute those crimes. I would establish that in the PD for the first time. And where are you going to find them? At this point, you have departments poaching from each other, Yes, you're right. I think there are a couple of really important things I would do as mayor. Uh, the first thing you have to do is you have to lead a really high-profile public campaign to recruit people to come back to these jobs, to communicate to people that we need this is a dignified, important role. We need you to come be a public servant and be an officer again, or be a mental health worker, or be a first responder. You'd be joining a lot of other departments in that display. Yeah, but I think, you know, we need, we need nuggets there. We need Broncos there. We need TikTok influencers. We need everybody in the city who cares about this to say this is a real public movement. That's step one. Step two is we have a problem right now where we have a terribly slow process to hire officers. Our civil service commission can take up to seven months to be able to approve you even to apply to enter the academy. A lot of neighboring districts do that in 60 days. And so if you're an applicant and you have two applications in, one in South Metro and one up in Denver, and in 60 days they give you an offer and we tell you you have to wait five more months to know if you have an offer, we lose a lot of great applicants. We particularly lose a lot of applicants of color, a lot of women, a lot of um, more diverse applicants. And so I would both really pay attention to recruiting officers from the communities that they serve creating a big high-profile public campaign to recruit them, and making sure we can exploit the process for actually vetting and hiring so we can get more people onto the job more quickly.
0: Now, Denver has paid millions in settlements over police violence. Those dollars represent lives lost and broken. That presumably has something to do as well with the quality of the officer or first responder you bring on. How would that pattern change if you're elected? And it is the risk of fast-tracking all of this
1: that you, you attract a lower-quality candidate? No, I don't think at all we drop standards for quality. I think it changes a couple things. One, how you recruit those officers. Second is how you train them. And the third is the kind of job that you deploy them to. One of the reasons why we want to get back to full staffing with these officers is that allows us to go back to what people want the most, which is a real model of community-based policing, of a place where you have officers that are out walking beats. They have five or six blocks that they're in charge of every day they talk to business leaders, they talk to residents, they give them their cards, and you build relationships. And if that's the different kind of job someone's being called to do, you can recruit a different kind of person to take that job. You can train them in different ways so their skills are actually in de-escalation, not in escalation, and finding a situation that's heated and finding a way to make it calm instead of doing the reverse. I think we can deliver a very different kind of relationship between city and police. In the past
0: couple of years, we know that Denver's growth has slowed. Under your administration, would you have a growth mentality? Like, do you want more people to move here, or is this more about retention for you?
1: I think the first priority is about retention, but what we know right now is 80% of the teachers, nurses, firefighters, public servants, servers in this city, can't afford to live in this city tonight. So we have a huge challenge about building the actual housing we need to make the people who live here now able to afford to live here. And so for me, it's about what kind of development are you doing? What kind of growth are you doing? I think what people have seen over the last decade is a lot of new construction but a lot of new units being built that are not affordable to them, that don't serve the people that are living in those communities. And so my real focus is on how you actually build the units we need that stay permanently affordable so people can afford to stay here and be able to live here, and I'm happy to talk to you about that. Yeah, I mean, I invite you to answer your own raised question, Mike (laughs) Johnston. So here's how we do it. So, I mean, this is why I spent the last two years working on this project, and that culminated in the passage of Proposition 123 last year, which we built a coalition of 260 organizations around the state to support, first time in a history of ever passed a statewide ballot measure to focus on affordable housing. And what this does is it changes the way we build housing, and specifically it helps take the profit motive out of the development of housing. So what we would do is build 25,000 units that are permanently affordable. And what that means is in these units, if you move into one, and anyone that makes about $100,000 a year or below is eligible, when you move into one of these units, the rule is you would never have to pay more than 30% of what you make to rent. So if you're a first-year teacher and you make $40,000 a year, You don't pay more than $1,000 a month in rent. And these are all rentals? These are all rentals. I'll talk about home ownership in a minute, because that's an important part of it as well. But the deal is your rent cannot go up unless your income goes up. And these units are what are called deed restricted, which means that deed runs with a unit forever. So if a new landlord comes and buys the building, it doesn't matter. The unit stays affordable. So that means if you are that teacher or nurse, you're not worried each month the rent might go up two or $300. It's linked directly to your to your income. And so that's what we can do and would do around the city if I were mayor. And the way this works is because we... these dollars come through CHAFA, the Colorado Housing and Financing Authority, and they help invest in the development of these projects. And what you do is normally you'd have a private sector investor like a bank or a JP Morgan or a Goldman Stanley. They invest in these projects, but they want a 20% return on their investment. That return on that investment jacks up the cost of the rent in all these units. If you have a public investor like CHAFA, they can invest in these units and they can take a small return, like one or 2%. But that difference can drop each unit price by $800 per month per unit, which means a unit that was 1800 a month can now be $1,000 a month, and it can stay affordable forever. My understanding is that Chaffa dollars are actually quite hard to secure, and the scale that you're talking
0: about is enormous. So square those for me.
1: Yeah, so this was why we had to pass Proposition 123 is that Chaffee dollars have been successful, but they very are hard to secure because they're limited in nature. There weren't enough dollars. And so what we did was... Add $300 million more in revenue around housing, that's about five to six times more than what the state was spending each year currently. So it dramatically expands the capacity of what Chaffa can do uh, while allowing you to finance a lot more of these units. What is the motive for a for-profit developer to get involved in that
0: affordable housing product, the rentals, if you're kind of removing
1: that profit motive or at least lessening it? Well, this is one of the key learnings I had the more I studied this, which is to the developer, it's actually even easier for you this way because now instead of having to go to 10 or 12 banks hat in hand and asking them for investment money, you can come to Chaffa, you still got the money you needed before to build the actual project and make it work and to pay your people and make your margins work. Uh, It just just cuts out the profit motive from the investor on the front end. So you're
0: saying that the the bank's involvement, the investment bank's involvement, is where the markup is.
1: Exactly, Uh and the investment banks is where the markup is and they're adding no value. They're not actually building or developing anything. They're just giving you the money and taking uh, a big return off of their loan. And these units,
0: if they are to be placed throughout the city and not concentrated in one spot, uh, you are going to have to perhaps get the buy-in of neighbors who may not want that sort of housing in their backyard.
1: Yeah. Well, the key also about these units is they are built in mixed income developments, So they're not a building with 100 units, all of them that are affordable units. There might be a building with 100 units. 60 of them that are market rate, 40 of them that are affordable. So you can have the doctor and the nurse living in units side by side or the teacher and the lawyer in units side by side. Let's move on to homes for purchase. Yes, two things we're excited about. One is uh, we want to build a bridge from being able to be a renter to being a homeowner. And one of the things is it's very hard to save up the money you need to make a down payment. So one thing we put in place is what's called a, a renter wealth building structure, which is you could be a renter in one of these units. And when you pay your rent each month, say you pay a thousand or $1,100 a month, about $100 of that rent would come back into a savings account for you that is helping you actually build wealth while you're renting in the same way when you pay your mortgage, you're building equity while you're paying it. So it creates a bridge to help people start to over 10 years or so, you could build up $10,000, $15,000 of wealth building you could use to roll over to a down payment. But the real key here on home ownership is we know that there are two challenges. One is uh, a lot of families, particularly those that are first generation or first time home buyers, particularly families of color overwhelmingly have a hard time getting access to the down payment, they need to buy a home. You might have the income, you might have the credit, but you don't have access to the down payment. When I was at Gary, we launched a program called the Deerfield Fund, which is a black home ownership fund, the first of its type in the country. This is Gary Community Ventures, to have their name right? Yes, yeah. good memory. Yeah. Uh, and so that's been a very successful uh, a fund, which provides down payment assistance to black families trying to get access to homes. About 150 families who've already been moved into homes they can now keep and build wealth and pass on to their kids. What we could do is expand that program citywide so any first-time or first-generation home buyer could get access to up to $50,000 of down payment assistance that you could use to get into that home. So you could stay in the neighborhood that you grew up in or the neighborhood that you want to live in and be able to stay long-term. And so you're relying on the nonprofit community there, the no, foundation we, we, community? No, we put city dollars. And the current version we built when I was at the foundation was a philanthropic model. Right. We were already in talks with the city about creating a city-based version that would include public funds. And so because this is a revolving fund, when someone takes that down payment assistance after five or 10 years, whenever they refinance their home or sell it, they would then pay that back to the next family. So it's sort of a revolving loan fund that can work in an ongoing way. And so I think that's a really critical way to both close wealth gaps that are really significant across the city, that are dividing families of color from white families in terms of access to home ownership, and it makes it possible for people who grew up in the neighborhood or work in the neighborhood to be able to stay. The other part of what I would do here is there are some times where even if you have down payment assistance, you can't get to a $700,000 home ticket uh, if that's the price of a home. We also can build partnerships with organizations like Habitat for Humanity or Elevation Land Trust where you can have land trust. Where there's a nonprofit that owns the land underneath the home uh, and they discount the purchase of that home. So you might buy it for $300,000 instead of 600000 and you own it. It's yours. But you keep it for however long you want to. But when you resell it, you can only sell it with a certain amount of increased uh, value. So if you bought it for three hundred thousand, you might sell it ten years later at three hundred and fifty thousand. You built some equity. You had a chance to uh, build wealth. But it means that home stays affordable for the next teacher or the next nurse or the next firefighter. And so we want to do both: both help families that can and want to build wealth for their own families long term, and help neighborhoods that want to stay affordable long term do that while still including home ownership. Would you take any steps as mayor you think would tick off the business community? Oh, I think um, uh, I find that there are, as someone said leadership is a process of disappointing all of your friends at a rate that they can tolerate. <laughs> you know, it's like there are always going to be times at which you'll disagree with different factions of the city on different issues. I don't know. I, I mean, the things that are top priorities for me really are about these three, which are affordable housing, they are homelessness. They are a focus on public safety. I think right now the city is pretty unified in wanting those things to be resolved. There may be folks that want them done differently or more quickly or more aggressively. You know, I'm a believer that, for instance, on homelessness, we need to actually give people access to housing and give them access to services. I don't believe you want to arrest homeless people or you want to just kick them all out and assume they're going to find some place to go. So there might be folks who want you to, to lock everybody up overnight. I don't think that's a real sustainable solution. But I think there are paths that I find are the balance between uh, where different sectors of the city might land. But I think that I've had the chance to listen to all the people in those sectors and have a good sense of what a solution is. that's not just an idea on paper, but a proof point we know has worked.
0: I ask this with the idea of Governor Jared Polis hoping that the state can supersede some local zoning, upzoning, the idea that anywhere you could build or just about anywhere you could build a single family home, the state would say you should also be able to build a duplex or apartments or condos. Should the state have the power to declare that that sort of density could happen just about anywhere in a city?
1: Uh, I think what the state should do, and this is what we did in Proposition 123, is say to local governments, you have an obligation to build more housing. And by the way, more housing that's affordable. I think we're not agnostic as to just any housing. We want to make sure the housing that's being built does come at a price point that serves the people who need it the most. Uh, And we're going to hold you accountable for delivering those results each year. So in Proposition 123, we said you have to expand your stock of affordable housing by 3% a year, every year, where you choose to build that how you choose to build that, you can decide. If you're going to meet those goals every year, you'll probably need to do some density in some places, but you can make the decisions where you want to put that density, whether it's gentle density in more neighborhoods or higher volume density in fewer neighborhoods. So I think there is a balance for locals to decide that, but I do think there's the right push to say we don't want uh, to have locals drag their feet for too long on not doing anything.
0: And so if a similar bill to the one that came up this session were to appear in future sessions, you would oppose it?
1: Well, I mean, I've read enough bills and been a part of enough bills in the future. I'd I'd wait to see what I read in them before I see that. I guess I want to ask very specifically, if the policy comes back to say
0: upzoning just about anywhere and you don't have the power to say no to it, would you oppose that?
1: Uh, I I think I would be likely to oppose it for this concern, which is the risks I think we have there are one around gentrification. You get potential uh, neighborhoods that have old legacy homes that get bought out and upscaled very quickly for that opportunity to bring more units to those places. And the other risk is you don't necessarily get the number of units you need at the price point you need in the places you need them, right? If you take a single family home in Hilltop and you turn it into a quadplex, Yes, you could probably get $4 million units on that piece of land. That would not necessarily solve an affordability problem. Uh, It might be a windfall to the landowner. But I think our approach would be to find a balance between where you bring that density and how you make sure it delivers affordability. I'd like to circle back to
0: homelessness. When we met at Arapahoe Square, you talked about the idea
1: of micro or tiny homes. Where do those go? Yeah. And this is what we saw at Arapahoe Square is what happens when you concentrate all of the services in the city in one location and how hard that is for the city to manage. The idea of these micro communities is to do it quite the opposite, which is to say you take 10 or 15 half acre lots around the city. um, City owned property. City owned property, city or RTD or DPS or state land board. There's a tremendous amount of public land around the city. You put on those half acre lots, 40 to 50 tiny homes. Each of those tiny homes would have a bed. They'd have a Shelter for uh, all your stuff. They have a cot. You have access to kitchen and bathrooms and showers. And most importantly, on those sites, you have wraparound services. You have mental health support, you have addiction treatment, you have workforce training, you have long-term housing support. And what you have is you've decentralized those services so that now you can move those to any part of the city because the services are on site. You don't have to come downtown every day again to get services, uh, which means you can have much smaller scale communities with staff that's there around the clock to provide the support you need to get back up on your feet and get back into the workforce and get back into a place of your own. Is each one of those locations a potential fight with the neighbor? i yes. I think each one of those can be that fight if you do it the wrong way. I think they can be very successful if you do it the right way. Where have you seen this work? Yeah, if you want to see the site that is our best example of this, go to 40th and Marion, just off of Colorado Boulevard. And that is a half-acre lot that is in about light industrial location. It's about five or six blocks from light rail, so you are close to transit. But you're not in the middle of a heavily residential neighborhood. And you could drive by it once or twice and you might not see it. Uh, Very well kept, very well cared for, and very well fit in to the neighborhood context. And I think this is why the scale matters. If you're talking about five-acre sites or very large campuses, hard to put those in a lot of different places in the city. When you're talking about smaller places with more human-scale communities that are 40 or 50 people, both you build a tighter sense of community, and you also get services on site. And also the reason this works is what it allows you to do is actually – respect the way that people who are currently homeless build community, which is the reason this works is when you open a micro community uh, with 40 or 50 units, you can now go to two or three blocks of encampments where folks are currently living, and you can rehouse all of those people into a new community that is actually much more safe, more stable with the services they need. How long are they there? Is uh, this
0: transitional?
1: It is meant to be transitional. So for a lot of, you know, I think what we found generally is it might be six to nine months, um, and that's enough time for you to get Maslow's hierarchy of needs met, you get stable, you get, maybe if you're struggling addiction, you get clean. If you're struggling with mental health issues, you get access to medication or treatment. You find a job, you get your first couple months on a job, you get a little money saved to be able to make a, a first month down payment for a rent. And so that is the hope is that these would be transitional. There are other versions of these we can do that are hotel conversions where you can take old hotels and convert those. Those units, if they have full kitchenettes in them could be more permanent, but most of the micro communities will be transitional. Let's go back to that idea of the tensions that might arise
0: before these are established with the neighbors, Mm -hmm. with the businesses nearby.
1: What do you do when you meet resistance, if you meet resistance? Yeah, so I I think for me, what we found is there is sometimes resistance on the front end. And then there has been quite uh, surprising acceptance and even support on the back end after they've gotten placed. Because I think what people are used to is the experience they have with the community that is homeless right now, which is very large numbers of people in a downtown center without access to services and without any real supports and that feels much different and more dangerous uh, these will feel very different which is you have people with all the supports they need they have access to bathrooms and access to showers and their own place to lock their stuff so you don't have stuff that needs to be strewn around the campus they take a real pride in taking care of their own homes and so I think that is a very different experience when I talked to the when I was visiting one of the residents at this site and I was asking them what they do for you know for food what do the what is who cooks do you is it like dorms where you alternate who cooks for which night Uh, and he laughed and said you know there's honestly more food here than we can ever eat because monday night the lions club comes and tuesday night parkland united methodist comes and wednesday night the grandma's club comes i mean now now they've gotten settled and the neighbors have gotten to know them they've really built a relationship where people see people that they want to support and help to get back on their feet and that has a feeling of Neighbors in your community that you can be a part of supporting uh, as opposed to a large, anonymous, faceless, nameless group of 1,400 people that seem much more threatening in the downtown context.
0: Under a Johnston administration, would there be any circumstance where you would arrest someone to move them?
1: No, my belief on this is you do not arrest someone unless they've committed a crime. And so we will be able to move people to these units. And I think the myth is that people don't want to move to units like this. When we did a pilot like this with Colorado Coalition for the Homeless, we had 300 units that were available. More than 800 people who were unhoused signed up immediately to want to get access to those units. 800, by the way, is almost 60% of the entire count of all of the current homeless population in the city and county of Denver. Right now, the city with the most success in the country has reduced their homeless population about 40%. Uh, We could double that success if you just took what we learned from this pilot, which is dramatic numbers of people wanted the services. More importantly, when we moved those 300 people to those units and and they got relocated, A year later, more than 86% of them were still successfully housed. Uh, Three years later, more than 80% still successfully housed. So the long-term trajectory is quite good when you get people access to these services at a scale where they can accept them and where it feels manageable for both the staff and the people. And so I think what we know is a great majority will succeed with those kind of services. Those that won't and that still struggle or don't make it in those settings, yes, if they are committing crimes, if they are breaking the law and committing crimes, then they'll be arrested or be charged. But if they are not committing any crimes, and, no, they should not be arrested. I
0: hear this is a very Denver-centric solution, and you talked uh, at the beginning, uh, certainly at my prompting, about the idea of regional collaboration. Mm. So in what ways does Lakewood and Aurora... And Greenwood Village, Uh, how are
1: you working with them on this? I don't think it is a Denver-centric solution. I think it starts as a Denver solution because of what we saw at Arapahoe Square, which is right now Denver has concentrated the overwhelming majority of its need and challenge with homeless people in our city center around those 10, 20 blocks where most of the services are. So I don't believe Lakewood or Aurora want to come down and solve downtown Denver's homelessness challenge. I do think once we build the infrastructure for this and we start to get these micro communities up and built and we have people moving successfully into services, we absolutely should partner with our neighboring communities to say, what's working for you? What's working for us? How do we along our shared borders and shared boundaries make sure there are supportive and successful services, knowing that each community might have their own approach? But that this is replicable? Oh, you know, it's 100% replicable. I think our belief is if we can show that we can do it here, we can partner with other communities that want to do it in any way that they do. I think that what we don't want to do is wait. I don't want to spend two years on a Blue Ribbon Commission with eight other municipalities thinking about what we should do. We know what to do. We know what works. We know how to do it. We have to scale it and scale it aggressively. When we get to that place, then it's a great time to talk to partners and say, how can we work together to make sure the services you have and the services we have align?
0: Under Mayor Michael Hancock's Vision Zero plan, Denver established goals to eliminate traffic deaths by 2030. And yet, in recent years, those deaths have risen. Uh, Is that Vision Zero goal achievable, aggressive enough?
1: Well, I think it's aggressive enough, and I think it's admirable, and I think we have to take it upon ourselves to make it achievable. I think there are a number of things we can do. We want to make it possible for fewer and fewer people to have to use cars all the time. We want to make it easier for people to use public transit and to do this linked to our plan to help revive downtown Denver. And so I've come out uh, and supported a plan to partner with business to make public transit free for commuters um, and for students coming to and from downtown. With the idea being if you work at a coffee shop downtown and you got to pay 20 or $25 a day for parking, that's can be an hour or two hours wage. And we want to incentivize workers and other residents to come back downtown to work or play or uh, recreate. And it also incentivizes more utilization of our public transit system. Right now we're in a sort of doom loop on public transit where people find it not convenient or not efficient enough or sometimes not safe enough. And so they're using it less and less. And so the fewer and fewer riders we have, the fewer and fewer routes we have, the less convenient it is and you head in the wrong direction. Yeah, but if you make stuff free for a lot of people, don't you just exacerbate the doom loop for RTD? No, it's quite the opposite, because if you get people that are commuters, so you, these are people that are working, they're, they're employed, and they have partners that are workers down there that are employers that help provide them eco-passes they can use to be able to come to and from work. And what that does is actually adds ridership back to the system. And the more riders we have in the system, the more influence we have over the routes, and the more riders you have, the more frequent routes that you offer, right? If you have 100,000 and people waiting on routes. You need to do them every 15 minutes, not every 30 minutes. And so more riders do bring back more frequency and more reliability. But you said free, but EcoPass isn't free. So what we've done is historically that businesses have either bought EcoPasses for employees or the city has helped subsidize some of the discounts of that. What I would do is partner with business to say, let's have the city and businesses combined to make sure those EcoPasses are available to all commuters at a discounted rate that we and the businesses would help establish together. So now they're still issued by your employer, but we're getting all the employers to participate through a deal with RT and the employers and the city.
0: Is Denver on a bit of a spending spree under Mike Johnston as mayor? I mean, you've talked about a lot of investments here.
1: Uh, Quite the opposite. I'm actually very proud of the fact that if you go to our website, and you look at each of my detailed plans I've laid out on each of these areas, I've actually laid out how these are paid for, uh, where the dollars come from, and how they come from existing revenue. So these do not require new taxes uh, or new investments either on housing or on homelessness or uh, on transit. And this is why we both use the dollars we have more efficiently, and we use both state resources and city resources. A lot of this homeless and affordable housing investment is made possible now because we passed Proposition 123 last year. Those are critical dollars that will fund, for instance, the staffing of each of these micro-communities that will fund the investment in the affordable housing units. So Prop 123 was critical to make these resources available. Now that they are, we just need the leadership to make sure we can make them happen.
0: How often do you ride public transit? And I wonder how that experience has shaped the vision you've laid out.
1: Yeah, I don't ride it uh, as much as I would right now. And that has helped shape the vision. In part, I have three kids and um, and a working spouse, and so we have a lot of errands that are attached to any part of our day. So if it's not just point to point, getting to work and getting back, if you have to do four or five drop-offs or pickups along the way or run carpools, it can be harder to use public transit, we know that. But we do know that there are still up to about 40% of routes that are just commuting-based, and so that is our real opportunity to capture people when they commute. So you see this truly as a commuting boon, not a errand boon. Uh, for errands, we need a different solution. And so for errands, you can do things Things like neighborhood circulators which are smaller buses that are often electric that move around neighborhoods there's one in montbello right now that works quite well i would do more of those then there are other things like the a-line to the to the airport we don't ride as much because we're a family of five. And so for five of you on the A-line, that's $50. Uh, that's actually more than it would be to park or to take an, an Uber. Uh, and so uh, I think in those places, we want to change the incentives to make it easier for families to ride in that line and make it easier, frankly, for, for people like airport employees. Right now, airport employees also don't take the light rail because uh, it's too expensive. And so that's a lot more traffic we're putting onto Pena Boulevard for the up to 10,000 employees to try to work out there. And so I think there are ways we can both make it more easy to access for families families, both in terms of cost and convenience, and also how do we provide more support on the last mile? This is also why the way we do development matters so much. The more we can make neighborhoods walkable, where close to your house you do have a restaurant to go to and you do have your dry cleaner and you do have a grocery store, then you can walk or bike around the neighborhood and then only use the long, uh, longer commuting lines to get to and from work or to and from a Nuggets game or something else. But I think that's why you want to focus on the longer arteries of public transit and then the last mile solutions once you get there.
0: Uh, No doubt this connects to climate change and what sorts of emissions a city is producing. What is not working about Denver's current approach to climate?
1: Uh, I think we have done some very good things. I think the city voters supported the creation of the climate fund that we have now that puts about $40 million a year into climate. That is a good start. I think there are some lofty goals out there that I support, which is getting to emissions free by 2040. It's a question of what we do to utilize all of our strategies to get there. And I think there are a couple key things I would want to do uh, as mayor. One is we know about 50% of the emissions still are coming from buildings. And so that's why we want to push to both electrify uh, our commercial buildings and our residential buildings to make sure new buildings are uh, powered by electric energy and that that's going to come from both wind and solar off of as renewable sources. It also means then retrofitting existing buildings, which means getting the people to put in new furnaces or double-pane windows or all the more efficient ways to conserve energy that a lot of our older buildings don't have. That's both a job creation strategy and a cost-saving strategy for people who are paying very high utility bills. We also know... But it is a capital outlay at, at first, and these aren't great times if you own commercial property. Uh, that is the truth. And so I think that what we, well, actually the capital outlay on commercial buildings, the cost is not greater to do electric over, over gas. It's actually longer term, more affordable on electric. But I'm talking ungasso. about retrofitting. Yeah. Retrofitting is not, the way you do retrofitting is it's a financing strategy, which is right now I used to have an office in North Park Hill and I was there for a decade and we would pay more each month in utilities than we would pay in rent. But what you find is we might be paying $400 a, a month in rent. We don't have the 10,000 front to do a new furnace. If you did do that, it would drop your, your payment about $200 a Month, you go from 400 a month to 200 a month. So you have financing to pay for the 10,000 up front. And then when your bill drops from 400 to 200, you pay it back over the delta or the change in that bill. So there are ways to finance these in innovative ways, same with the way we put solar panels onto roofs. I also think there's a real opportunity here for equity to do things like how do we do community-based solar gardens in those communities that are struggling the most to pay the utility bills they have right now. So all of the the electricity we bring onto the grid through those solar panels can actually offset the cost for neighbors who are really struggling with high utility bills. So I think there are ways to both serve our long-term climate goals uh, and to serve our goals around equity and affordability in the city at the same time. People have spent a lot of money to help you get elected.
0: You and Kelly were the top fundraisers. Will you tell us about a time you've stood up to moneyed interests? And I'd be most interested uh, in, you know, perhaps your own donors to follow your convictions.
1: Yeah, I think my convictions have been quite clear. I feel like the folks that support me support me because they know exactly where I stand on issues, and they know that my approach is not going to change. So any supporter I have has never come with an ask or a promise or a commitment. It's, here's my vision for the city that I've laid out, as you've seen. Here's my plan on homelessness. Here's my plan on affordable housing. Here's my plan on public safety. Here's what I expect to do. If you believe in that vision, you should support it. If you don't, that's okay. But I've never had a moment where anyone's ever supported me, and that's caused me to change my perspective on any issue that I take. And so, uh, you know, depending on the partner, there'd be different times that people have probably disagreed with a lot of ideas I've had. There might've been folks who, when we passed Universal Preschool, didn't like the idea that we were using tobacco tax as a source to fund Universal Preschool, but we knew that was the path to get Universal Preschool done, and so we did. When we looked at affordable housing statewide on Proposition 123, there were some folks who didn't like the idea of us holding cities accountable to actually delivering results on the number of units that they built each year. They wanted just to have the money without accountability. And my belief was, I respect that difference, but I'm not willing to put a bunch of taxpayer money in unless we know there's actually accountability at the back end. And so I feel like I always listen to folks from all sides and I always take all perspectives uh, and I learn from the feedback I get, but I don't change my Perspective or opinion or values based on who's supporting me. I, I change them only based on what we think is going to deliver the best result.
0: Why do you think there's so much money coming into this race from out of state, including to support you? I oh. mean, it's a it's a Denver mayor's race. Yeah. I, I think about how I mean, I don't give to political campaigns because I'm a journalist, but like I I would be hard pressed to give money to a race in Cincinnati.
1: Yeah, I think this is a moment where there is a great deal of pessimism about what's possible in American politics, and people are looking for places where they're optimistic there are leaders who can deliver transformational results. You know, I think a lot of people that are supporting me are people that have supported past efforts I've done to take on problems that seem unsolvable, and we've delivered on them, whether it was getting the DREAM Act passed for the first time for undocumented kids or – taking on the NRA and winning to get universal background checks or magazine bans done or universal preschool or affordable housing. These were problems that seemed unsolvable. We built really broad coalitions and delivered on them. So now when people look around the country and see a lot of cities and a lot of progressive cities, frankly, that are failing at figuring this stuff out, that are failing on figuring out homelessness or failing on figuring out affordability or failing on public safety, people are really looking for, is there a city somewhere they can figure this out? And if that city can figure it out, that would be a great model for the rest of the country. And it would be a great proof point for the rest of the country to say, no, we really can run these cities and make them both welcoming and progressive and successful. And I think they, these are the same folks that fund progressive candidates around the country that are trying to deliver those kind of results. And so I'm excited that they believe Denver can be the proof point to get that done. Thank you so much, Mike. You bet. Thank you so much for having me. Mike Johnston wants to be Denver's mayor, but he'll have to
0: beat Kelly Bruff in the June 6th runoff. At Denverite.com and CPR.org, you can read and listen to both interviews, including their thoughts on the future of Denver International Airport. Tomorrow and Thursday, it's the candidates for mayor of Colorado Springs, the state's second largest city. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.
2: The Southwest United States has been in a drought for more than 20 years, a big problem for the Colorado River and the people who use it. I think we're only screwed if we're not willing to act. Parched, the new podcast from CPR News, is about people who rely on the river that shaped the West and have ideas to save it.
0: Find Parched wherever you get your podcasts. Supported in part by the Grand Canyon Trust, at the state capitol, lawmakers are sprinting to the end of session, and it got us thinking about numbers, the ones assigned to a House or Senate district. Is there any pattern to them? A listener wondered about this, too, and so CPR's Megan Verley took up the case.
2: Okay, I'd really like to string you along for some big mystery But...
0: Unfortunately, there is no answer.
2: That's Ben Williams, a redistricting expert with the National Conference of State Legislatures.
0: There are two places where you could have a source of law on numbering. One of them would be your state statutes or your state constitution. And the other could be Congress. Congress
1: does have the power to regulate how congressional districts are structured. Uh, They don't have any law on how numbering works. And most states don't have laws on how numbering works either.
2: In the absence of law, there is tradition. Lots of states put their first district in a corner and move out numerically from there. Colorado, not so much. We gave our first district to our capital city, and then as we've added seats in Congress, the new districts, and their numbers, have generally gone to the fastest-growing areas. So in 1971, Colorado Springs got the 5th district. In 1981, the 6th went to Aurora in the suburbs. And more recently, the new 8th landed along the Northern Front Range when it came to numbers for the most recent round of redistricting. The commissions decided to keep them as similar as possible. That was easy enough for the congressional seats. But former Redistricting Commission staffer Julia Jackson says for Colorado's 100 state House and Senate districts, it took a bit more doing. Our chair of the Legislative Commission was like a programmer math guy, so he came up with a formula. In places where there wasn't a number that fit, they had to borrow from elsewhere in the state. Which may explain why, over the decades, the district numbers for the legislature have gotten a bit higgledy-piggledy. Even Jackson admits the lack of a system can get annoying. Yeah, as a map person, I don't like the numbers very much because I I can't place them on a map particularly well. From the CPR Newsroom in House District 5 and Senate District 31, I'm Megan Verlee, CPR News.
0: And you can send us questions about life in Colorado at cpr.org slash Colorado Wonders. And that is Colorado Matters for today, with thanks to our team.
1: Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer.
0: Andrea Dukakis. Rachel Estabrook. Michelle Fulcher.
1: Matt Hers, Tom Hess. Michael Hughes. Chris Ketchum. Pedro Lumbrano. Shane
0: Rumsey. Chandra Thomas-Woodfield. And I'm Ryan Warner with special thanks to Kyle Harris, Ben Marcus, and Obed Manuel. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. Thanks for spending time with us.